This week, all about neurocognitive issues, because January is Alzheimer Awareness Month. We are talking about post-operative delirium and burden of healthcare costs in patients with dementia. Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at Healthy Debate. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and I am joined today by Nathan Zilbert, who is a resident in general surgery, also at the University of Toronto. Hey, Nathan, how's it going? Very well, Amol. How are you? I am great. So we're talking all about uh, neurocognitive issues, dementia and delirium in honor of Alzheimer's Month. Yes, indeed. So before we get started, our medical student, Jennifer Pang, has prepared a brief segment about the treatment of the behavioral and psychiatric disturbances that can be associated with dementia. So Jennifer, take it away. Hey, everyone. January is Alzheimer's Awareness Month in Canada. So to bring this to light, we at the Rounds Table have decided to focus this clinical encounter segment on the pharmacological management of behavioral and psychiatric symptoms of dementia. 90% of those with Alzheimer's dementia will develop behavioral problems such as depression, agitation, aggression, and psychosis. These behavioral problems become a serious concern and a source of stress for both patients and families, as well as increasing the cost of care. It is imperative to balance the benefits of medication with the potential risks, especially when treatment is for an elder population with pre-existing risk factors and comorbidities. The 2012 Canadian Consensus Conference on the Diagnosis and Treatment of Dementia consists of a total of 15 revised and new recommendations. We are highlighting four that we thought were the most important regarding the treatment of neuropsychiatric symptoms of dementia. First, for the management of mood disorders, a trial of an antidepressant could be considered only if the patient had an inadequate response to non-pharmacological interventions or has a major affective disorder, severe dysthymia, or severe emotional lability. This is a change from the previous recommendation which suggested that a trial of antidepressant therapy should be considered. The change is based on more recent evidence from two randomized controlled trials, which showed that treatment of depression has benefits equivalent to placebo but treatment groups experience more adverse events than placebo groups. If treatment is considered, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, are preferred, and tricyclic antidepressants should be avoided due to their anticholinergic effects. Second, valproate should not be used for agitation and aggression. Randomized control trials have shown valproate to be poorly tolerated, associated with significant toxicity, and may even lead to accelerated brain volume loss compared to placebo-treated patients. Third, there is insufficient evidence to recommend for or against the use of cholinesterase inhibitors and or memantine for the management of neuropsychiatric symptoms. This is a change from the previous recommendation which stated that patients who have mild to moderate Alzheimer's dementia and neuropsychiatric symptoms can be considered for a trial of cholinesterase inhibitors and or memantine. This revision was based on a randomized control trial of donezepil, a cholinesterase inhibitor, and a randomized control trial of memantine. Both trials found that in patients with agitation, there was no significant benefit compared to placebo. Fourth, 
Risperidone, olanzapine, and aripiprazole are recommended for severe agitation, aggression, and psychosis associated with dementia where there is a risk of harm to the patient and or others. The potential benefit of these antipsychotics must be weighed against the significant risks such as increased strokes and mortality. The lack of new therapies for Alzheimer's dementia makes it that much more important to constantly evaluate and clarify management in order to provide the best care for Alzheimer's dementia patients. For the rest of the revised and new recommendations, as well as the rationale behind the changes, you can find the review paper in today's episode description on healthydebate.ca. And don't forget, we're always looking to hear your feedback, so give us a shout on Twitter at Roundstable. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this installment of Clinical Encounters, and I'll catch you guys next time. Okay, thanks so much, Jennifer. So, Nathan, let's uh, let's get started. Um, shifting gears, I guess, a little bit away from dementia to talk about delirium. Um, talk to me about uh, post-operative delirium. Yeah, thanks, Amol. So I wanted to talk about uh, two very recent uh, papers that have come out on the topic of post-operative delirium that I think uh, give us some up-to-date information on this very common issue that uh, a lot of us encounter in our clinical practice. The first is a systematic review and and meta-analysis of risk factors for the delirium, and the second one focuses on some of the consequences of uh, delirium for patient outcomes. So the first paper was uh, just published this month in British Journal of Surgery, and it was a systematic review of 11 studies of patients undergoing abdominal surgery um, that included 1,400 uh, patients. And I wanted to just share some of the key findings from, uh, from their meta-analysis. Perfect. And maybe just before you, before you dive into telling us all about uh, the key findings, can you just tell me, um, were these mostly uh, prospective cohort studies or uh, retrospective studies? And what were they examining? So these were mostly retrospective studies, and uh, I would say the overall level of evidence would be uh, somewhere in the not high category, as is typical <laughs> of uh, most surgical uh, publications. And mild to moderate. Wow! Don't be so hard on your surgical research. I'm colleagues. not. That's uh, I think a well accepted statement that uh, you know the compared to cardiology or or other disciplines the uh, frequency of randomized controlled trials is uh, is is less, and uh, the number of patients in those trials would be less. So it's uh, I'm not, I don't think that's a controversial statement. Fair, fair. Okay, so um, so largely retrospective evidence uh, looking at delirium in abdominal surgery. Yeah, and uh, they were trying to tease out from all of these studies what the um, risk factors were that led to that led to uh, delirium. Okay. And are there any major important inclusion or exclusion criteria that we need to know about these studies before we interpret the risk factors that they're going to tell so us So the, there was some heterogeneity of the exclusion and exclusion criteria within the studies included in the, in the meta-analysis. But the, the key one that the authors mentioned was that many of the studies excluded patients with a history of dementia, which I think, uh, is important because I think we would all kind of agree that someone with cognitive impairment or dementia known preoperatively, those patients are probably among those at highest risk. And it's not so surprising if those patients develop postoperative cognitive issues. So this 
uh, group of studies mostly was looking at patients without dementia and what are the factors that predict delirium in that uh, lower risk group. But I actually think it's in some ways quite reasonable because the dementia risk factor is obviously probably the largest risk factor for postoperative delirium and uh, might have obscured maybe some of the other signals. So, you know, recognizing that those are really high risk patients, I actually think it's a very relevant question, which is of all the other patients who we can't immediately deem as high risk, you know, what are the risk factors that are likely to predict postoperative delirium? Because we know it's still a relatively big problem in that population. And maybe that's a good place to start. What were the rates of postoperative delirium in these studies? So it was uh, a, a range from about 8% to just over 50% among these 11 studies. So, uh, you know, obviously, Again, this is a, a, a meta-analysis from 11 different studies, and there is quite a range here, but I think it does indicate that at least in in some uh, settings, this is a, a very common problem. And the, again, these are studies that for the most part excluded patients with a history of dementia. Okay. And remind me how many patients we're talking about. Just over 1,400. Okay. So what were the risk factors? What are the major risk factors for postoperative delirium? So they divided uh, the risk factors into preoperative factors that could be identified on history and, and physical, as well as intraoperative factors. So they divided it into me and you, basically. That's right. The things you can ask about and the things I can do something about. Perfect. And so what did they find? <laughs> you took no offense to that, eh? Uh, yeah, I, you know. <laughs> just roll. Just there's <laughs> sometimes when you just... If I were to respond to every comment a surgeon ever made about an, you know, an internist... I, I, there wouldn't be enough hours in the day. <laughs> All right, moving right along. The uh, so the they looked at uh, over ninety variables that were accounted for in all these different studies, and not every variable was accounted for in every study. But the ones that proved to be the the strongest predictors were age, uh, American Society of Anesthesia class, which is uh, one of the many ways of uh, uh, stratifying people based on comorbidities, low BMI and low albumin. A history of alcohol excess. Those were the uh, preoperative variables. And the intraoperative variables were intraoperative hypotension and uh, perioperative transfusion. So what do you think about those? First of all, okay, I th overall, from a, a perioperative medicine point of view, I like that they included some intraoperative risk factors. Um, one of the weaknesses of most of the perioperative risk scores is that they're predominantly designed to do preoperative risk stratification. So if you look at cardiac risk indices, they are based heavily on preoperative factors. And as a result, I think they're, they're not very good at actually predicting outcomes um, because they kind of ignore everything that happens in the surgery. So I like that uh, they commented on major intraoperative risk factors. Because uh, that's really important and it's helpful for us when we're following patients. You know, I can go back through the anesthetic record and look to see if there was evidence of these clinically important things and recognize that that, that would flag my risk uh, or increase the risk of perioperative delirium. So, so I like that there's intraoperative factors. Do you want to make any comments about that before we talk about the other, the preoperative factors? Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, I don't think any of these are necessarily surprising, but I mean, in, again, they looked at a whole host of uh, lab parameters and, you know, items on history and physical. And I, I do think, you know, intraoperative hypotension, perioperative transfusion, what are these a marker of? It's probably, you know, a period of being under-resuscitated and, you know, 
some degree of shock that I guess could be transient, uh, depending on how it's measured. And I think it just kind of shows you that, you know, the brain, the mind is one of the organs that can be uh, affected in that context. And, and it's a, you know, proved to be relevant in their analysis. The one that, uh, category of variables that uh, sort of was not something that I expected to uh, to find as one of their significant predictors was the the, the nutritional uh, parameters low BMI and and low albumin and I, I think you know there's a lot of talk about frailty and uh, effect on you know just general uh, robustness as a as a as a marker for maybe some issues after surgery and and often the outcomes that are being measured are are some of the uh, harder morbidity and mortality outcomes. And I think it's uh, informative and, and valuable to see that uh, these nutritional parameters uh, also seem to impact uh, post-operative delirium. Yeah, I totally agree. So those are things that I don't usually think about. So I, I, I have to say, okay, so of the five preoperative uh, risk factors, age is obvious, mm-hmm. um, ASA class or medical comorbidity, and then the third uh, one that's uh, fairly obvious is people who have a large history of alcohol use, although I think we probably uh, underdiagnose that and underestimate that in our usual clinical interactions. And then the other two, I agree with you, the two nutritional indices, I don't usually think about it when I'm seeing patients preoperatively. Uh, and I will now add that to my, to my list of, of things to consider. Like you said, you use the word frailty, and I think that's probably, you know, the syndrome that this represents. Uh, so, but, but it's something I think that I will add and be more deliberate about noting in my preoperative assessment. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, you know, it just highlights uh, it as, a, as an issue that certainly I wasn't uh, necessarily thinking of regularly either. Absolutely. And can we just close by commenting on how good these individual risk factors are or how closely these individual risk factors are linked with delirium? So, so of, of all seven, the one with the largest odds ratio is perioperative transfusion. For uh, what that's worth, it's an odds ratio of 3.17 with uh, interoperative hypotension uh, being the the next most just greater than three. So, you know, these were only included in four and two of the 11 studies respectively and about, uh, you know, a a third to half of the patients. So, uh, I mean, you know, for when you kind of get into uh, the nitty gritty of of each one, I mean, I think the evidence can become... uh, you know, a, a little bit, uh, you can, you could scrutinize it further. The one that was included in most of the studies was age, which, uh, also was, you know, on the, on the higher end of their, uh, of their analyses. So not only, only in most of the studies, I can't imagine a single study about perioperative delirium that doesn't record the age of a patient. Well, uh, whether they, you know, included it in their, uh, in their, in the analysis, in their analysis. uh, only um, seven of 11 did. Wow. Okay. So I think the important concluding point about all of this is as much as it was interesting to flag points for us as clinicians, it seems like there's a real paucity of evidence. Yeah. A, a paucity of, uh, of, of high quality evidence. Uh, I would agree with that. On, okay, on that note, on. <laughs> the next paper yeah, I'd like to on. discuss is uh, from uh, JAMA Surgery from December 2015. And, and the reason why we, uh, why we wanted to, to review this uh, study was that it looks at uh, adverse outcomes for patients that have postoperative delirium and compares that uh, to, to patients who have other complications that were deemed to be 
life-threatening or life-altering. So this uh, was a study of uh, over 500 patients from two hospitals in Boston. So there are two, two centers uh, studied, uh, all of whom were uh, had their medical records uh, subjected to uh, an extensive review to uh, assess for post-operative complications. And delirium was uh, assessed by a, uh, a standardized uh, delirium assessment tool. There are a few uh, that, are, that seem to come up regularly in the literature. This one is the confusion assessment method. And the good old good CAM. Old cam. And uh, in combination with the, with the retrospective chart review. Basically, of these 566 patients, 8% uh, had developed life-altering or life-threatening complications and just under 25% developed delirium. The main uh, outcomes that they were interested in were uh, three specific, what they deemed adverse outcomes. One was a prolonged length of stay. One was an institutional discharge. And one was uh, their 30-day readmission rate. And basically what they, what they showed was that for all three of those uh, poor outcomes, when patients had delirium, the likelihood of any of those things happening was significantly higher than uh, those without delirium or complications, whereas complications only affected uh, length of stay. And there seemed to be a cumulative effect when they looked at those patients who had both delirium and complications. Okay, so um, can I just take a quick second to comment on, so this was a prospective cohort study of older adults over the age of 70, I think, all all adults, and undergoing you know, like surgeries that have moderate to high risk of delirium, so hips and knee replacement. And when they prospectively evaluate for delirium in these patients, the rate of delirium was super high, right? Yeah. I mean, it's in keeping with the uh, the range um, from the, the meta-analysis that we discussed, it was right in, in the middle of that range, about a quarter of patients. And, you know, I think uh, that's not that surprising, especially if you're using, you know, I think these these methods would be more sensitive than our morning rounds. Well, that's what I, yeah. So that's the point I want to make, which is that when we prospective, we know this, when we prospectively look for delirium, we find a lot more delirium than we just pick up by our clinical gestalt or certainly than by, you know, administrative databases. So I guess it's not so surprising that del- delirium is associated with worse outcomes, but tell me what exactly were the differences in terms of the length of stay, readmission rates, discharge to an institution? So the readmission rate for patients that had no complications or no delirium was uh, just under 10%. And for those with complications and with delirium, it was about 20%. The institutional discharge rate was 50% in those patients that had uh, no delirium or no complications. It was about the same in those that only had complications. And it was 80% in those that had delirium. So 30% uh, increase, which uh, is uh, obviously uh, clinically relevant. Absolutely. And then length of stay? So the the patients who had delirium had a length of stay of five and a half days, which was one full day more than those without any complication of delirium. Okay. So uh, this prospective seems like fairly high quality study uh, highlights, I think, a couple major points, right? So delirium is pretty common in older patients who are undergoing these like knee and hip replacement type procedures. Um, if you have delirium, your length of stay increases by one day, your predicted disposition to an, another institution increases by an absolute factor of 
and your readmission rate basically doubles to almost 20%. Yeah, and I think that to me is uh, higher on all fronts than what I would have necessarily guessed. Um, and and I, I think, you know, like the previous study, I think this just uh, informs us when we're looking after these patients that the uh, not only not only what what can we think about that predicts who will ha- who will develop postoperative delirium, but um, a reminder of the impact that it can have on a patient's hospital stay and beyond. Perfect. Okay. Thanks so much, Nate. All right. Why don't you tell me about uh, costs of dementia? Yeah. So I want to talk about a paper that was published by Kelly and colleagues in the Annals of Internal Medicine about the burden of healthcare costs uh, for patients with dementia and some other medical conditions in the last five years of their life. So this was a retrospective cohort study of uh, patients who are receiving Medicare in the U.S., and it showed that patients with dementia have greater healthcare burden and costs of care in the last five years of their life than patients who die from heart disease, cancer, or other causes. And in particular, their out-of-pocket expenditure is 81% higher for patients with dementia than those who have other conditions. Wow. So... um... Why did you choose this study? Yeah, I wanted to talk, well, Nathan, apart from the obvious fact that uh, January is Alzheimer month, we're so we're out here raising awareness. So that's reason one. But actually, this is a really fascinating paper that I'm, I'm very excited to talk about. So before this paper, fairly little is known about overall the costs of care in the last years of life. I mean, we hear a lot about, uh, you know, the data from Medicare uh, and Medicaid about, you know, how much of expenditure happens at the end of life. So there's some literature about that, but where there's gaps is, first of all, total healthcare costs. So we know a little bit about public insurance plans and how much they spend, but we know less about out-of-pocket expenditure, about private health insurance uh, expenditures, about uh, informal caregiving and the burden that that plays on people's families um, and and lives. And the other thing that we don't know so much about is... uh, the burden of care for dementia itself and how that compares with some of the other medical conditions that are highly morbid at the end of life. So how did uh, these investigators uh, accumulate all those different types of data? Yeah, so they used data from a a nationally representative longitudinal cohort study, uh, which is called the Health and Retirement Study. Um, And it's basically a longitudinal study of American adults who are over the age of 50 and it includes very detailed qualitative information about uh, out-of-pocket expenditures, insurance coverage, socioeconomic status, health and cognitive status, causes of death. And these are all gathered through serial surveys, which happen uh, you know, every two years for the patients enrolled in this study. And then they identified the people in this study who died between 2006 and 2010 uh, and who they could link their data with Medicare claims databases. So this ended up being a, a cohort of about 1,700 patients. Okay, very cool. So they were able to combine the administrative data from the data from their survey. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so what, uh, what more can you tell us about this group of 1,700 people? Yeah, so they took these 1,700 people and they categorized them into four groups. So they've developed an algorithm within their data set based on all the cognitive measures that they do in their surveys to predict the probability that someone has dementia because kind of like we said with delirium, if they rely just on administrative codes like in the claims databases, 
dementia actually gets very underdiagnosed because people usually have, you know, some other reason for death or admission to hospital um, uh, when, you know, in fact, the underlying problem might be dementia. So for example, you know, you go to hospital with pneumonia, but it's because you have swallowing difficulties from dementia, right? So they've developed an algorithm uh, based on their cognitive measures. And so they included everyone who had a greater than 50% probability of having dementia based on those cognitive measures. They put them in the dementia group. And then of all the other uh, individuals they put them in the non-dementia group, and then they categorize them according to cause of death, separating them into a heart disease group, a cancer group, and an other group. And then they looked at overall healthcare costs and compared them between uh, these groups in the last five years of life. Okay, so what uh, did they find? Um, in the dementia cohort, they found, okay, so these patients were older, uh, an average of 88 years old, as opposed to in the other three groups, they were, they were in the low 80s uh, at the time of death. Um, they found that the dementia cohort, interestingly, was less likely to be married. So they were 25% married versus 35 to 45% married. Um, they found that the dementia cohort had overall less educational attainment, lower household wealth. Um, and so interestingly, you know, there's a lot of differences in the dementia group just to begin mm -hmm. with. They found that dementia patients, uh, spent approximately $290,000 in the last five years of life on healthcare costs. Spent or was spent on them, right? By uh... Correct. Correct. So total healthcare costs for those individuals was $290,000 in the last five years of life compared to other disease groups uh, where the costs, total healthcare cost was about $180,000. That's collectively for the cancer and heart and other Correct. Like the other three groups were not different okay. from each other. Here's what's really interesting. So uh, these were all Medicare beneficiaries. So these were all people who received what, what is theoretically supposed to be universal health insurance coverage for people over the age of 65 in the United mm -hmm. States. Um, and so the Medicare expenditures for these individuals was the same across all groups. It was approximately $90,000 uh, in the last five years of life. Where there is a big difference was in all the other categories of expenditure. So out-of-pocket expenses, private health insurance expenses, informal caregiving costs. So when they looked at out-of-pocket expenses in the dementia group, the difference was uh, the dementia group spent about $60,000 out-of-pocket as opposed to $34,000 in the other three groups. Uh, in terms of informal caregiving, about $80,000 in informal caregiving costs were spent on dementia uh, patients as opposed to $38,000. Um, so really the difference is driven from this expenditures that are not being covered by public insurance. Yeah, that's very interesting and definitely very cool that they were able to uh, tease all of that out. Were they, were they able to tell us what some of these out-of-pocket costs include? Yeah. So you, you could imagine uh, a lot of them are things like so one of the big costs is nursing home costs. Okay. Uh, you know, a portion of that is covered uh, by public insurance, but a portion of that is either out of pocket or covered by private. So do insurance. they have a much higher rate of being residents in nursing homes? Was that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The other kinds of expenditures are, you know, in-home care, uh, informal caregiving costs are really important in terms of the burden on family members. Um, out of pocket expenditures include uh, money being spent on uh, prescription medications or healthcare equipment, that kind of thing. 
so there's yeah there's an increased expenditure kind of across the board uh but specifically in all of these costs that tend to fall outside of the domain of public insurance um there are some really interesting things that break down in terms of socioeconomic status so the gap between uh dementia and the other groups is bigger for minorities and also for those who have lower educational attainment. So for example, if people have a less than grade five education, uh, dementia costs account for almost half of their total wealth. Wow. So it's, it's really fascinating. And one of the things I mentioned before is that, so remember that people with dementia uh, tend to be lower socioeconomic status, lower educational attainment to begin with, right? Um, and so the fact that dementia care is more expensive the burden is also heavier on those people because they have less initial wealth to begin with, which is really fascinating in the fact that dementia potentially has a really important role in exacerbating inequalities. Uh, so you could imagine, so if, if half of your total wealth in the last five years is being spent uh, on caring for the dying person, uh, there's that much less to be passed on to subsequent generations um, and that really obviously would exacerbate inequalities in society. So there's some really fascinating stories to be told here, I think, both across generations and about informal caregiving. Uh, so this highlights, I think, a really fascinating challenge that we're facing in society. And uh, it's probably fair to assume that uh, we would find similar uh, disparity in Canada. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so this that, that's a really fascinating question, too, right? I don't know. Uh how generalizable this is, but I think it's more generalizable. You know, I, I don't think we can write it off as not being generalizable because this is in the category of people mm -hmm. who are supposedly covered by universal insurance, right? Yeah. And we do not have universal, you know, long-term care coverage either. And there's a huge amount of out-of-pocket costs associated uh, with that for Canadians. Exactly. You can imagine a lot of similarities in the Canadian system where a lot of home care needs are, are out-of-pocket a lot of long-term care expenditures are out of pocket. Um, so for sure, you could you could imagine a similar story happening here. Very interesting. Yeah, and I guess the obvious uh, policy implication is that there's a lot of unmet needs uh, for the dementia population in terms of uh, healthcare expenditure. Well, that's fascinating. And also, do you want to uh, tell us some takeaway points? I guess the major takeaway point here is that uh, there are a lot of socioeconomic factors that are highly associated with having dementia to begin with. And then healthcare costs at the end of life are much more expensive for individuals with dementia and that a lot of that burden tends to fall outside of the areas that are covered by public health insurance plans. Why don't we move on to our good stuff segment? So my good stuff uh, goes kind of in the opposite direction from... Uh, neurocognitive issues of older adults to uh, something I came across on the CBC uh, radio about the growth and development of children. Well, perhaps it's in the opposite direction, but perhaps it's like crucial for neurocognitive development of older adults. Well, uh, you have to crawl before you can walk. Uh, so, th so the new story is called uh, Sprinkles and it uh, caught my eye because uh, of my general sweet tooth. But uh, what, what it's about is actually a, uh, a food uh, additive that is uh, given out in, in developing countries that was created uh, by a pediatrician in Toronto at the Hospital for Sick Children, who was recently inducted into the Order of Ontario for this, and that's why uh, it, it made the, uh, the news this week. And, and basically, the, the issue that uh, he tackled 
was that in countries where uh, a lot of food for babies and children are made in the home and there's a lot of uh, proportion of their diet coming from very simple foods like rice, the nutritional fortification that I that I certainly took for granted before hearing this story uh, of micronutrients and, and vitamins that are important for growth and development aren't present in the diets of uh, of many babies and children in developing countries. And what this uh, researcher and public health advocate did was develop a product called Sprinkles, which is distributed to people's homes. They can add it to their food. It's something that comes in something like a pack of sugar and it has a variety of vitamins and uh, iron and uh, zinc and and things like that that just get added to the foods and they've been able to show that this uh, results in significant uh, health benefits to children, basically providing them with the same uh, benefits that people in developing countries get from readily available processed food. So I, I thought it was a, a very interesting story about something uh, you know close to home that is uh, benefiting people around the world. Uh, that's a great that's a great story. I wonder how it tastes, and I wonder if I should you know Tim Hortons with this new sprinkles. <laughs> it's a great idea. All right, so um, I want to talk about a paper in the American Journal of Medicine that was published by two heavyweights in the world of uh, medical literature and medical research. So the lead author of this paper is Abraham Verghese, and the senior author is John Ioannidis. And it's about the inadequacies of physical examination in medical error. So they surveyed 5,000 physicians and asked them to report clinical vignettes of cases where diagnosis had been missed or delayed. And what they found was that the major determinant of delayed or misdiagnosis in these causes was a failure to perform physical examination in 63% of the cases. So they, they found just over 200 vignettes. And the major mistakes that people made were not undressing the patient and examining the skin. Uh, in patients with abdominal pain, not appropriately examining the groin, rectal area, and hernia orifices. So that's relevant to you, friend. I I agree it is relevant to me, but not to me, Amol, because I'm always thorough with my physical exam. Because you've never not examined a, a hernia orifice. <laughs> right. Okay. So anyway, so I thought it was really interesting and they found that, you know, where these delays occurred or where the physical examination inadequacy occurred, there was delayed diagnosis, incorrect diagnosis, unnecessary treatment, unnecessary investigation, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a really important uh, you know, I think set of stories. And were these, were these stories we or were these, these were people were asked to uh, share true events? Correct. Yeah. They were asked to share their experiences, uh, true events with patients. So um, that's, that's all from me this week, Nate. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Pleasure was mine, Amol. Thank you for having me. Let's, let's do it again soon. Can't wait. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash the rounds table. Follow us on Twitter at rounds table or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash rounds table podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>